It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. Nine AM Bright Daylight Last Week Walking Home Around a Corner All of a Sudden There is a large, healthy male coyote standing 20 feet away from me, looking at me. I know what I'm supposed to do. And so I do it. I just ran up to it first and I was like, Hey! He does not flinch. In fact, he looks at me like, Hmm, that's interesting. What's this lady doing? And so I take my daughter's razor scooter and I start to hit and bang the nearest thing that won't cause property damage. What? A street sign. The pole of the street sign. And he runs. No, he doesn't run. He jogs across the street. And he stands and he stares at me. He's supposed to be afraid of me. I know this. Officer Randall told me this. Um, You know, we've had uh, uh, animals have become very used to seeing people. Um, And a lot of people, the reaction is to run or not do anything. And this is basically you let the animals know it's okay for them to be where they are. And granted, I mean, this is their environment also. I have read that they cannot feel comfortable around people because if they do, we will have a problem and they will have a problem. And yet I have never been in a position where I've actually exercised the forcing of that relationship. It's it's very important that, you know, even if the person doesn't feel threatened by the animal to use scare tactics, to frighten that animal away so it's less likely to approach another person. You must be afraid of me. I'm not armed with anything other than a razor scooter. So, here we go. I run at him, I lunge at him, and I proceed to bang that next no parking between 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. vigorously with my daughter's pink razor scooter with Hawaiian flowers on it. This time... Oh, those are the parrots. 
It's the flock of parrots that live in northeast Los Angeles. This time, he runs up to the next yard, and I chase him again down to the next street sign, the no parking sign, and I bang and I yell at him, Go! It's, it's very important that, you know, even if the person is, doesn't feel threatened by the animal to use scare tactics. And he goes around the bend and up into the hills. And by that time, my voice is hoarse and my throat hurts. And five or six neighbors have walked out onto the sidewalk. And they're all looking at me. But they're not coming off the sidewalk toward me, but rather just staring at me. And so I scan around for the first Chinese papa. And I say, it's the coyote, Longwa. I think that's what it's called, Longwa. And we need to keep it away. Oh, okay. And then I talked to the white guy who bought the old house on the corner, young, tattooed, long hair, amicable, and saying hello. And he said, you know, I see him in my front yard, my backyard, all the time. He never really bothers anyone. And I say, well, he never bothers anyone, but if you see him in your yard... You better make sure he leaves because he doesn't need to be there. If he's there and he thinks he can be there and be comfortable and eat what there is to offer, he'll start eating your fruit, your plums and your lemons, but he may end up eating your cat or your dog. He needs to think that this is not the place to be. Otherwise, he could be in trouble and we could be in trouble. And then the lady with the baby from the apartment complex walks over and says, No, pues me dijeron que atacaron a un perro hace una semana. Y ahí está en el parque. And then I hear from another neighbor that there was a collar and a leash found up in the park. I went out to the mountains of Ventura County on a windy day to talk to Seth Riley of the National Park Service. He's the author of a book called Urban Carnivores, and he's a specialist in the ecology and conservation of wildlife in fragmented urban landscapes. Coyotes are indeed very successful in urban areas. They reach some of their highest densities and have some of their smallest home ranges in urban areas. Home ranges. Yeah, okay. sorry. What does no, that mean? The home range is the area that an animal generally uses, roams, roams across. So like their own individual territory. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so my job with the Park Service is as the wildlife ecologist, but our job in the parks in general, in all the parks, is to do our best to preserve the resources in those parks for future generations. Um, and for me, that means the wildlife resources. So my job is to do my best to preserve all the wildlife populations. And so, but in a, in a park like 
Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area where we're right next to Los Angeles, we have some different challenges than you might say a Yosemite or Yellowstone or something like that. So all of the work that we do um, here at the Santa Monica Mountains is focused on understanding what are the impacts of urbanization and fragmentation on, on wildlife populations and communities. We're a big, you know, beautiful, sort of great park, but we're also absolutely an urban park. In fact, we're the biggest urban national park, is, is my understanding. And so from an animal perspective and from a plant perspective largely too, we really think the biggest threat in our area generally is urbanization and, and fragmentation. So we've been studying carnivores since 1996. So that means coyotes, bobcats, and now mountain lions as well in the park. And the reason we started with carnivores is, and we continue to work with them, is they need a huge amount of space. So when habitat is being lost and fragmented by development, carnivores are one of the groups that you would expect to be especially affected. Um, so we, from 96 to 2003, we did this nine-year study where we captured 130 coyotes and we radio tracked 110 of them. You know, we collected their poop and to look at their diets and, you know, we did lots of different stuff. Tell me a little bit about what you found out about them that was surprising. They really are, and this every time I, you know, give a talk about this kind of stuff or whatever, I often focus on it. They really are focused still, even in this urban landscape, on natural areas and natural foods. So, for example, we, you know, coyotes, as with all animals, there's lots of individual variation. So we had some animals that were very heavily using developed areas and, and urban areas and stuff, but we had many that were that never went out into the into the urban areas and on average 75% well it's about two-thirds about 66% of their home ranges were natural and three-quarters of their actual locations you know where we actually found them were in natural areas so so what does natural mean in this context really well, in so an we, urban context yeah Southern California. well that, no that's a good question and, and that's something in urban ecology you have to think about all the time. What does natural mean and what does urban mean? Um, we, we divide the landscape up into three categories, so they're fairly coarse, but one was intense development, so high density residential areas, commercial areas, you know, that kind of thing. And then on the other side is natural areas, so all of the parkland, so national parkland, state parklands, conservancy parks, anything that is essentially relatively you know unmanaged undeveloped natural protected area right yeah but that's not you know planted grass and mowed and you know that kind of thing not that's, a garden exactly so yeah or a third? field or whatever and the third was what we called these altered open areas so things like golf courses or there's a landfill in the middle of the park um, or office parks or developed parks that are you know sort of ball fields and you know that kind of thing so areas that are they're not quite they're certainly not as oh one thing that's pretty common in southern california actually is very low density residential areas so gated communities with they're they're residential but there's big lots with often sometimes even relatively natural habitat sort of in between them on average most of the time they're spending in natural areas um, and the same thing was true of their diets so we collected scats and we went through them and sort of washed them until we got just hair and bones and seeds and things like that so we could see what they were eating. And the vast majority of their diet is natural items. So 
let's take a little break from washing coyote scat. This is Here in the City. I'm Sarah Harris. We'll take a short break from our coyote show, and we will continue with Seth Riley at the National Park Service in the Santa Monica Mountains. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. Actually, fruit is a major item. They're omnivorous, like raccoons, as opposed to, say, bobcats, which are pretty strict carnivores. So in the... Those cats, they just like to eat meat. Exactly. No, it's true. Yeah. Um, so in the fall, summer, fall, there, there's a lot of fruit in the coyote diet, so it's two-thirds to 75% of their scats have fruit in them. Um, and then after that, rabbits were the most common prey. Those are also important for bobcat diets. Um, and a lot of the what we call anthropogenic items, so human-related items like trash and domestic pets, so cats and dogs, um, and uh, pet food, those, are, those were present. You know, we found them occasionally, but they were a tiny percentage of the diet. Um, so what, what that means to us is that, it, that the coyotes are basically preferring when they can to live in natural areas and preferring to eat relatively natural foods. I mean, the, the one exception which is interesting, which is more the case, say, in Southern California than in Chicago or some of these other cities, is ornamental fruit was actually the most important non-natural sort of item in coyote diets. So what is ornamental fruit? Well, so in other words, plants that are planted that aren't native, that are planted by people. So that might be in yards or in parks or things like that. So like oranges or peach well, trees? Yeah, exactly. Peaches, plums, cherries, uh, pyracantha were all very commonly in coyote diets. So those things were a little bit more, um, a little bit more common. But like I said, things like trash, uh, and pet food and, and even pets were like cats we found in like one percent of the of the scats really so, only one percent of the yeah. coyotes that you tracked had well cat of the remains. scats that we looked at yeah now but i'll always say that 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 doesn't mean it a that it doesn't happen and b that it isn't important um because i'm a cat owner and if i, I would be very sad if my cat was killed by a coyote and so every time a pet is killed by a coyote that's a, a big deal to that pet owner absolutely um what what we're seeing is it's not a major part of what the coyotes are relying on um, so what are they like socially coyotes how big are the groups that they live in and what's the day in the life of a coyote like um well so the coyotes are they're definitely social animals so most mammals are not not terribly social like for example the bobcats and the mountain lions the males don't hang out with the females in general the males have much larger home ranges and they're just out there to overlap with as many females as they can basically and the females do all of the taking care of the offspring um, and that's true in lions and 
Um, bobcats, most felids, and lots, lots of mammals actually, but canids, including wolves and foxes and coyotes, are more social, and their basic unit is, in, in coyotes, is the pair. But then they can be in much larger groups, and you may have, or many people will have sometimes seen groups of, you know, five to ten coyotes. And usually that will be an alpha pair plus maybe offspring from a couple of years. So some of the offspring may hang around in that group um, for, for longer. And they, they do actually dig dens, and so they will have the young. The females will have the young, and the males will use the dens too mostly. I mean, not always, but mostly. Um, but they are not using those dens year-round. So they're generally sleeping, and sometimes in some amazing places, but they're generally just sleeping in any area of more cover. You know, we've found them, you know, that I remember radio tracking a coyote in the Oak Park area where there was a pretty major road, Canaan Road, and then there was a developed park, like, you know, ball fields and stuff, and there was just a single line of hedges in between and the coyote was you know spending the afternoon sleeping in that hedge I mean that's somewhat unusual but so in general they will find whatever sort of more protected areas they can and sleep in those um, and when you say that they're of the smartest animals uh, that you've encountered in urban carnivores uh, what is it like what makes you believe that they're that clever they do have a fame for that in Native American culture also. Sure, yeah. Coyotes are very smart about that. So, for example, they will learn. So if there's a couple people working for a particular agency, for example, that are doing hazing, but most people are not, the coyotes will figure that out, and they will figure out who is doing the hazing, and they will run from those people, and they will not run from anyone else. Or really? they will even figure out so particular trucks um, that carry those agency people they will learn to run and respond to the trucks um, but again not respond to other people so it's actually one thing that makes it very hard to uh, to sort of counter their habituation because they're very smart really what you need is you know it sort of takes a community right you need everyone to be thinking about okay we want coyotes to be more wary of people This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. And I'm walking down Figueroa Street with an well with a friend who's an urban forester and an architect. And her name is Holly Harper. She's been on our show before. And she's walking her large dog toward a point where what is it that we're going to see it's a dog that looks very much like a coyote it doesn't act like the other dogs in the block and that when she's out he or she um she never makes a move or a sound she just watches us very carefully with these very piercing like not quite dog-like eyes <laughs> but she's in someone's yard yeah she's someone's doggy she doesn't act like any of the other dogs in the block in fact, my, I'm, I've noticed her just because I'm walking my dog, Rocky, and I'm always on the lookout for other dogs that could become, <laughs> become an issue. 
or a hazard, and he's never noticed her, which I think is incredible because she never moves, a, you know, she never moves, she never makes a sound. She just watches him very carefully, and he and I go by. And it's, I mean, Rocky is not a small dog. He's not an unnoticeable dog, and in fact, he's not an unmenacing dog because as we walk down the street with him... Well, almost every dog at least has to make some run at the fence and bark at Rocky and let him know that it's not acceptable for him to pee on their fence and and even be in the space of their sidewalk it's just not that that seems to be the dog response but this this dog or coyote combination creature that I'm mentioning um, she's never had any of that she just watches us very carefully (laughs) and so we walked up to the fence with Rocky and while we watched her and he eventually came to the fence and she didn't bark at him at all. She did something else, which was I've never seen happen before among dogs. She still made no sound whatsoever. She just drew her lips back in that, you know, very coyote or wolf-like snarl, you know, just but without that or sound, just again, completely silent. Rocky, what do you think? Okay, so this whole show to this point has been about a wild animal adapting to human encroachment, especially in the urban space. And the last thing that I want to talk about is an instance of an urban creature making its way into a very wild space, principally myself and our arts editor, Jesse Lerner. In 2004, we went out to the Great Salt Lake in the winter, January. It was snowing in the middle of Golden Spike National Park. Beyond seven or eight cattle guards is a piece of land art called the Spiral Jetty, which was built by a man named Robert Smithson in 1970 by moving earth into a 1,500 foot long coil or spiral in the Great Salt Lake just high enough above the water line that in times of drought it would be visible and when the water would rise because more rain happens it's invisible it's entropy as he would call it it's unsurveyed land on the bed of the Great Salt Lake, if surveyed, would be described as follows. Beginning at a point south 3,000 feet and west 800 feet from the northeast corner of Section 8, Township So, for 34 years, this enormous intervention into the Great Salt Lake that was done with bulldozers and was filmed when it happened by helicopters. Uh, Actually, I think Mr. Smithson rented a helicopter and leaned out the window with his 16-millimeter film camera and filmed it happening. Anyway, this 1,500-foot intervention into the Great Salt Lake was 34 years later when we arrived visible. It was above the waterline because it had been a bad year for rain and everything was frozen and it was snowy and we saw it 
it was amazing. And on the way back, over some of those cattle guards in the snow, we got stuck, and the sun was setting, and the snow was deep and driving deeper, and we couldn't move our car till we broke out. The shovels? No. Cardboard? It didn't work. Rear-wheel drive makes it tougher. Kitty litter. Yes, we had kitty litter, snow chains. No. And the sun is setting beyond the horizon and the beautiful space of the Great Salt Lake and the spiral jetty start to look a little less beautiful as it gets dark. I think I'm running out of time. Um, I'll call right back. The Earth's history seems at times like a story recorded in a book, each page of which is torn into small pieces. Many of the pages and some of the pieces of each page are missing. And it's cold and it's snowing, and we're frankly starting to get a little bit panicky about what to do, and every time I hit the gas and Jesse tries to push, car just slides back and forth, and up ahead, past the sixth cattle guard, heading toward us, is an enormous pickup truck on giant wheels with lights up top, and three men in camouflage and orange vests and ski caps and thick gloves and sunglasses heading toward us, and they stop, and they asked, do you need some help? And we said, oh yes we do, we are stuck. And they took one look at our vehicle, and at us, and they said, isn't this car four-wheel drive? And I said, it is. They said, well, why aren't you using the four-wheel drive? And I, being an urban creature, out in the wild from Los Angeles in the middle of rural Utah said the notion I don't know that the lake must be connected to the Pacific Ocean by a subterranean channel at the head of which a huge whirlpool threatened the safety of lake craft was not dispelled until the 1870s long after people should have known better as a matter of fact eyewitnesses reported the location of the whirlpool about midway between Friedmont and Antelope Islands. They laughed. They put the car in four-wheel drive, and it was like we walked out off the snow and back to civilization. And I asked them, what are they doing out there toward the night in the middle of nowhere? And their answer was, we're hunting. Hunting what? This is here in the city. The spiral jetty, Robert Smithson's spiral jetty, will be screening a rare event this Thursday, July 12th, at Mocha's Grand Avenue Amundsen Auditorium, 250 South Grand Avenue. You can see it, 7 p.m. We'll have a link on our website, hereinthecity.org, Thursday, July 12th the spiral jetty. It will be a rare chance to see the movie that Robert Smithson shot 
of the creation of the spiral jenny. And that's it for Here in the City today. We will be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Until then, you can find us on the web at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To yapping on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace.